All right, well, as we embarked on this series back in week one, I actually shared some arguments against unbelief or, you know, atheism, agnosticism. And I said that, that when it comes to those issues, one, one of the realities is that they do not have a, an answer to life's deepest questions like, who am I? What's my identity? Or why am I here? What's my purpose? Or does anyone love me? What's my worth? Why do I matter? What's my significance? Or even what happens when I die? What about my eternity? And these are life's deepest questions and these are the questions that people are asking every day. And they're looking for answers and they're searching desperately for. And we said that, you know, unbelief, atheism, it has no answer for any of those questions. That's the sad reality. Apart from Christ and his word, no one can answer these questions. And at least not in a way that gives us security, confidence, and yes, even hope. In fact, I was thinking about two people today, Jay and Jenny. And let's just say, for instance, that Jay is, does not have answers to those deepest questions because he doesn't know Christ. And then Jenny, she knows Christ and she does have answers to all of those. She knows why she's here. She knows why she's valuable. She knows where her worth comes from. She knows where she's going when she leaves this world. And just think about their lives because you know, we all know people, right, on both sides of the aisle here. And so just, just think, what, would, what do their lives look like? Like, what does Jenny's life look like when she has answers to these life's deepest questions? What does Jay's life look like when he doesn't have answer to those deepest questions? I think we understand. And the reality is, that one of our key verses for this series again, in your hearts, 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we're saying here that when you know the answers to life, life's deepest questions, when you find them right here in God's word, you have hope. And that's what we're defending in this series, the fact that we have hope. The reality is our faith answers these very questions and gives us hope. Our faith answers life's deepest questions that everyone is looking for answers for and gives us an incredible hope. In fact, as we said last week, we talked about the spiritual thirst, like the rock that was struck and out of it came the living water that satisfies our spiritual thirst. We talked about having this eternal component because God breathed his spirit into us. And these are the things we're searching for and looking for and hungering for. We only find the answers in God's word. Now, I want to transition a moment from life's deepest questions to life's biggest questions. And the biggest questions are what? Well, we're talking about them in this series. Like, what about God? What about the Bible? What about creation? What about the gospel? What about Jesus himself? We'll talk about him today. And the reality is, you know, who has the answer to these biggest questions? And of course, we find them in the scriptures, of course, and we are looking in this series and seeing how we can make good, solid arguments to see that the Bible is reliable, to see that God is real. These are true. We're defending the faith in this series. Rational answers to a reasonable faith. And yes, it's reasonable to believe in God. His word is reliable. His creation is his. And we can trust what the scriptures say about creation, the gospel. And today we're going to talk about specifically about Jesus. And uh, that's where we're going today. But, you know, I was thinking about this, this reality. Um, is that we're trying to keep the answers in this series, as I said at the outset, somewhat simple. 
And maybe this, this idea resonates with me because when you get into a study like this, there is just mountains of evidence you can look through and you see all the arguments for God and all the arguments for you know, creation and all the arguments for all of these things and it's like you could spend you know, a month on each topic or more and, and you could get really deep and that would be a bit overwhelming. It's even overwhelming when, when you're studying and part of the challenge, I guess, studying is trying to take all of this and just hone it down and just try to come up with some simple little uh, arguments that we can just wrap our, our, our hands around and that we can own and that we can share. The, the truth is, we're looking for simple answers to important questions for the everyday man. Because we're not dealing with, as I said before, a lot of deep academia-type thinkers with, with PhDs that, that wanted... We're looking at people, just everyday people like you and me, that, that, that are asking questions about these things and how can we give answers that will, well, maybe... Uh, cause them to take a second look at God and at his word. And as I said, today we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at some of the claims that he makes and consider his own defense for being the, being the Messiah. And then next week we're actually going to look at some of the evidence for the crucifixion and resurrection and why do we believe those things actually happened the way the scriptures said they did. Now, we're dealing with a couple of assumptions this morning based on what we've looked at in the series already. One assumption is that there is a God and today Jesus will claim to be that God. At the same time, the other assumption is that God's word is reliable, that you can trust what it says. And we can even trust what Jesus says in the word about himself, that the word of God is incredibly reliable. We looked at the argument for that back in week two. So the truth is, when it comes to the Bible in a series like this, where we are defending our faith and making key arguments, Jesus will be at the center of the debate. Who is Jesus? I mean, if we are honest, we know that, we, that there are many opinions of Jesus, and it reminded me of the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples in Matthew 16. This is what Rick read earlier, but just here's a, a little bit again from Jesus speaking with his disciples about who he is. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or even one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then down there in verse 20, that curious verse, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And uh, God, Jesus wasn't at this point ready to stir up all the waters that would come with being publicly declared the Christ. And uh, so he said, don't tell anyone yet that I am the Christ, but I'm telling you and you're going to need to learn who I am. What resonates me here is that the people back in Jesus' day didn't seem to understand, have a clear understanding of who he really was. Sam Roberts writes an article in Vanity Fair, and, and he wrote this with, with the idea of what if the New York Times back in Jesus' day wrote an obituary for Jesus. I thought this was pretty fascinating. Um, Jesus of, of Nazareth, whose messianic message captivated thousand, dies at about 33. Here's the, what he wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, a Galilean carpenter turned in, inner, in, inner minister who appears to, uh, appeals to piety and whose repute as a healer has galvanized a glowing contingent of believers, died on Friday after being crucified that morning just outside Jerusalem, only days after his followers had welcomed him triumphantly to the city as the anointed one and the son of David. He was about 33. 
For a man who had lived the first three decades of his life in virtual obscurity, he attracted a remarkable following in only a few years. His reputation reflected a persuasive coupling of message, personal magnetism, and avowed miracles. But it also resonated in the current moment of spiritual and economic discontent and popular resentment of authority and privilege, whether wielded by foreigners from Rome or by the Jewish priests in Jerusalem and their confederates. After he was declared dead on Friday night, he was buried nearby in a cave. On Sunday, his disciples reported that his body was missing. You know, when I read that, you know what struck me about that? What, what an interesting way to con- conceptualize the death of Jesus back in his day. But what is striking about that is that how they would have written about Jesus and viewed Jesus back in his day is pretty much how we would view Jesus today in our day, right? It's like there's a lot of similarities there. Like people today are still confused about who Jesus is. Think about it. Jesus was an interesting, even controversial figure. He was in ways hard to understand. He gained a fair following. He seemed to be be a wise and good teacher. He seemed to live a humble life. His death was marred in controversy. His resurrection even more. And today, that's how people, he's he's just, if you do not know him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as your Savior, then you, you look at him and it's like, yeah, who is Jesus? How do I understand him? The real Jesus is often missed by most people, even yet today. Uh, that reminded me of C.S. Lewis who wrote the, the, this kind of iconic statement about, about Jesus. You've probably heard it maybe uh, kind, of, uh, kind of honed down or kind of abbreviated. But here's a, a bigger paragraph I'll share it in just a second. Many people in Jesus' day and many people today have misconceptions about who Jesus was. That's just the reality. And, and so this quote by C.S. Lewis kind of embodies this idea again. And you may have heard this and be familiar, may be familiar with this. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. He goes on, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is God, is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. In fact, I think I've got just a little other quote here from him. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend Two, finally, you may, you may, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And uh, so that is really, really, really a powerful, powerful quote by C. S. Lewis. So let's listen in this morning to what Jesus says about himself as Jesus makes some claims about who he is himself and uh, let's just see if we get a, get a sense of, of who he is and who he is to us and here's our big idea. We'll see this today repeatedly. Jesus not only tells me who he is, he also tells me who I am. He also tells me who I, Jesus tells us who he is but at the same time he tells me who I am and so today we have uh, the four I am statements from Jesus really three and then a fourth one just kind of tossed on at the end here and, uh, and we're going to see again 
how Jesus defines himself. Here's the first statement. Jesus says, I am. He says, I am. And where do we find this one? Well, the first one is found in John chapter 8. And the context is that Jesus is speaking to a crowd. There's a divided crowd here of believers and somewhat believers and non-believers, the religious establishment or the non-believers. And they get into a discussion about Abraham and who Abraham is. And we'll pick it up here in John 8, 36. Jesus says this to the leaders. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so Abraham, basically what he's saying is that Abraham saw Jesus Jesus and Isaac that's the point here like back when when Abraham walked up the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice him like God told him to there, there's a sense that Abraham looked at Isaac and saw Jesus he understood that in the future one day Jesus the Messiah would come walk up the mountain and he would be a sacrifice for our sins how he understood that we don't know but that is uh, the reality of what's going on there. In fact, it tells us in Scripture that part of the reason he was willing to offer uh, Isaac is because he believed God could raise him from the dead. So he saw something there. He saw the symbolism in his own son, Isaac. Well, of course, here's the response. The Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Like, come on. He was 2,000 years ago. You're, you're not even 50 years old. How did you guys see each other? How did he see your story? And of course, that's their question. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and listen, this is his mic drop moment here with them. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and they did not like that at all because they understood what he was saying when he said, I am. They understood exactly what he was saying. This is a reference back, if you remember, when Moses was on the mountain and God came to him in that burning bush and told him to lead the Israelites on that exodus out of Egypt. And Moses said, well, who should I tell them is sending them? Like if I go to them and say, I'm supposed to lead you out of, out of Egypt, they'll say, well, who gave you the authority to do that? And I'll, who do I tell them? And he said, tell them that I am has sent you. That Yahweh, the self-existent God, the great I am has sent you. And that's how God defined himself throughout Scripture as the great I am. And Jesus is going to do that. And in this moment, this is probably his most powerful declaration we'll, we'll see of the, of the three or four we look at today is when he simply says, I am. And they knew what he was saying. And Jesus is saying that, that I, am, I am the I am. And what, what is really fascinating, we've talked about this before, but Jesus said he was God without directly saying he was God. Like Jesus never ever came out and said, I am God. But he said it all the time. And that annoyed the religious leaders and that really angered them at this very moment right here. Because he implied that he was God. You know what's really amazing is for the last 2,000 years there have been people who claim to be Jesus. You know there are people on the earth right now today they claim to be the second coming of Jesus. I, I know a couple, I've heard a couple of stories. There's probably more than that. It's, it's just ludicrous but there are those that claim to be the second coming of Christ. But the truth is, the only one who has ever proved it has been Jesus. No one has fulfilled all the prophecies, performed all the miracles, or offered up their life as Christ did. And so that's just the reality. Here's what's really fascinating, is that Jesus prophesied that, that there would be people that would come in his name and say that, that they were the Christ, that they were Jesus. He said that. Matthew 20, 24, 4 and 5, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed to the disciples, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
How about that? Later on in the same chapter, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ, suedo Christos, uh, or Christos, and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. There's even a Greek word there defining these false Christs. And so Jesus says, beware of the pretenders. Beware, be on the lookout for those. I am the great I am. Now, part of the reason this is so important that we know that Jesus is the I am, right? Part of the reason this is so important, why is it important? Because Jesus not only tells me, tells me who he is, he also tells me who I am. Like he's telling me at the same time, he's, he says, this is who I am. He's telling me this is who you are at the same exact time. Time In the midst of this conversation, something interesting happens. Listen to the conversation, back up a little bit in this conversation. They answered him, the religious establishment here answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. And so, wow, you know, Jesus really levels them here. You're not the children of Abraham. You're the, maybe, but maybe you are genetically, you know, but you're the children of the devil. Wow, he hits them right between the eyes and that was a truth they did not want to hear and it's a truth that we all need to hear there's a truth in here for all of us the reality is jesus says we are either the children of god or the children of satan we really are and jesus defines that for us he's the dividing uh, whether we are one or the other i think a lot of times people want to think well there's a third category kind of like you know we have independence or something you know or those that are indifferent but there's not you are either a child of God or a child of Satan. It's simply, that, it's simply that reality that exists. It is true. There are people today who have trusted Christ as their Savior. They're born again. They're saved. They're redeemed. They're, they're in Noah's Ark. They're heading for glory. But they've been deceived by the world and they're not really living for Him like they should. There are Christians like that. And then there are, there are non-Christians over here who... They live pretty decent lives. They've never trusted Christ. They're not saved. They're in the world. They're not in the ark. But they're not like actively worshiping the devil or worshiping Satan. They're just kind of living an indifferent life. The reality is they're still the children of the devil and these are still the children of God because it's not based on our behavior. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. And so we're either one or the other. Now, there is a bit of a theological thing I can't totally wrap, I don't think any of us can totally wrap our head around, is that if you are a little kid like this and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ because you don't know how to, well, then you're not accountable. And so God's going to take care of you in the final analysis. And the scripture tells us in Romans 8 that God comes along and offers to adopt us and make us a child of God. And he tells us he's gone to glory and he's, he's going to one day come and take us home to be with him. He's getting the place ready for us in heaven. So we need to know that. But if you have not accepted God's offer to be adopted, then you're not his child. It is simply that simple. So today, Jesus not only tells me who he is, he tells me who I am. 
Am I a child of God? Am I a child of Satan? It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Now, second claim we have here this morning, and this is found in John chapter 4, another recognizable story. Jesus said to this woman, he's going to talk to this woman at the well. Here's the context of the story of the woman at the well. Used this story many times, very relatable story, easy to relate to, but there's something powerful in the midst of the story Jesus says that we need to zero in on this morning. So Jesus said to this woman, um, go call your husband and come here. So he's having this conversation with this strange woman at the well in the middle of the day. And the conversation gets kind of deep. And here it gets kind of personal. He says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation for the Christ is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He is saying here, I am the Christ. He's saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And uh, that was a pretty fascinating conversation that they had there it's interesting how in the middle she kind of changes the subject when he brings up her past and maybe she was a little uncomfortable maybe she sincerely wanted to know about you know where the, the the where they should worship but this is a great conversation that unfolds here and uh and Jesus defines himself for this woman I am the Christ I'm the one you're looking for and note the Samaritans were looking for the Christ the Messiah so were the Jewish people and Jesus was the one, so many missed him. That's the reality. Now the question here is, again, who is the Christ? So who is the Christ? Well, for one thing, the Christ is the eternal one. Let me show you something really fascinating here. So go back to the Garden of Eden a minute, right? Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they walked in the garden every day with the Lord God. Who'd they walk with? They walked with Christ every day. I mean, he, he, he physically manifested himself in the garden. They walked, they had a conversation. It was a literal expression. This is what's called in the uh, scriptures a Christophany. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before the incarnation. How it all works, I don't know. But then the day came. Then the day came when Adam and Eve ate that, ate that fruit on the tree. They sinned, they disobeyed God. And now... They are spiritually separated from God. Now they are, now they are naked and, and Christ shows up and this time he shows up and he has to deal with their sin. He calls them out of hiding and he's gonna deal with their sin problem and he, he passes the, you know, the, the judgment, the punishment onto them, the curse of their sin but then he turns to the serpent. He turns to the devil and listen to what he says. The Lord God said to the serpent because you have done this I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so back here, he's, he's, he's come back here and he's telling them that he is going to send a Messiah. So Christ is the eternal one, but then he's also the promised one. 
I mean, way back here, third chapter of the Bible, and God's promising that he is going to send a Messiah. What's really fascinating to me, what really struck me here and uh, is this reality that in the garden here's what's going on in the garden Christ promised himself to us like Christ himself said basically he's saying I'm going to come I'm going to come back someday I'm going to come back and, and, and live 33 years on the earth and die on a cross to redeem you from sin and death and hell Christ promised himself to us. And why is this so significant? Because, you know, there is a group of people today, there are some that believe, they mock this idea of what's called substitutionary atonement. What is substitutionary atonement? It's the idea that Jesus Christ died as a substitute on the cross in our place. Like, we all deserve to die on the cross. He substituted himself for us, and God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. Because Jesus bore our sins and so he poured his wrath out. So there are those today that mock that. And they call that divine child abuse. You know, that the father would treat the son that way. Well, this, this kind of shows you, that kind of undermines that whole, I don't want to say stupid argument, but it's what it is. It undermines it. Why? Because God didn't do any, he, God didn't put Christ on, on the, Christ put himself there. The son put himself there. He willingly chose to come. He willingly laid down his life for us. He says that in the scriptures, that he came and willingly in the gospel laid down his life for you and me. It's not the, it's not the father, you know, pouring out abuse on his son. It's the father and the son and the spirit working out this plan together and Jesus' role or the Christ's role in this plan was to come and be Jesus and to die on the cross. And so Christ is the eternal one, the promised one, and he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that was anointed with this mission to come down and be the Redeemer and be the Messiah King. And she had been expecting a Messiah, this woman at the well, just not, at the, just not today at the well. She didn't think he was going to show up here at this time. But she becomes convinced that he could be the Christ. She really becomes convinced of that. Now remember again what we said. Well, here's what it says. Jesus said to her, and, and, and here's the argument, just the thing to remember again. Jesus not only tells me who he is, he tells me who I am. So their conversation, listen what it says. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so their conversation as it ensues turns to this issue of this well and of this kind of this living water that can satisfy the soul. And it really intrigues her. It really super intrigues her when he talks about this. And here's two things that he tells us when he defines us in our life for us is that he alone can quench our spiritual thirst. Like Jesus alone can quench our spiritual thirst. Now initially the lady doesn't get this. She's thinking, oh wow, he'll give me physical water and I'll never have to come back here. But Jesus says, no, I have, I have, I'm, I'm talking about something much deeper. I have a much deeper well and in my well is living eternal water that will satisfy your soul. I was thinking about this story, and I wonder if this story doesn't lose something for us in the translation and culture. Here's what I mean. When is the last time you went to a well and dropped down a bucket and pulled up water to take back home, right? 
Well, we don't do that today. We have wells, but they pump the water when they're, when they're working, right? Steve and Lori, when they were working, they pumped the water into our home. So we can't really relate to this, but I'm thinking here's this woman who, just think about the amount of work, the amount of energy to get this water. And so, yeah, this is intriguing. Like, I don't have to come back here and do this anymore. And she's like, no, it's even better than that. My water will be a fountain that will rise up inside of you. And so we need to think about that. People spend a lot of energy and work today trying to satisfy their spiritual thirst. They look everywhere, but they don't look here. They don't look to the, the book, to the one who can answer life's deepest questions. And so they're spiritually thirsty. And Jesus comes to answer that question. And uh, we need to know that. And this is where the compelling story of Christ comes in. We talked about it last week. Beyond all the theology, there is an incredible compelling story here of what Christ can do for us, of the rock that was struck and out of him pours this living and eternal water that can satisfy our spiritual soul. And we all know people around us that are spiritually thirsty today, and so this is, has to be a part of our defense of the gospel. Something else struck me really fascinating here. In verse 5, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. This is back when the whole scenario starts. And it was about the sixth hour, and that jumped out at me because I thought, you know what else happened about the sixth hour on another day? There's another important day, and something happened about the sixth hour. Well, on the day Jesus was, was crucified, he was on the cross from the ninth hour until the third hour, and the sixth hour was new, and the sixth hour was when darkness descended and when Jesus transitioned from just the physical suffering to actually taking on our spiritual suffering and taking on our spiritual sun, and the, and the sky became dark and everything became dark, and whoa, then Jesus began to, I believe at that point, bear our sins in his body on the tree. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, he hung on that cross and he bore our sinfulness and our hopelessness and our brokenness and our emptiness. And shortly before he dies, this is what he says when he hangs on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And so here is the one, just, just get the picture here, that the, the one who is the living water is now thirsty. The one who is now the living water has taken a, has so identified with you and me that he is now thirsty. The one offering living water to the woman at the well now knows exactly how it felt to be thirsty. I think that is so incredibly powerful. And I know I've, I've mentioned that before, but I just saw the sixth hour there and it, it just drew that connection back for me again. The second thing Jesus tells us here, not only can he satisfy our spiritual thirst, but Jesus can end our spiritual search. He can end our spiritual search in the sense that he comes along and he says, you, don't, you no longer have to be defined by your thoughts and your emotions and your choices. I mean, if you don't know Christ, that's how you're defined. By the choices you make, by your emotions, by your thoughts, by your injustices, by your injuries, by your past, by your pain, by your hurt, by everything that's been done wrong to you, all the mistakes you have made in life, all of your personal failures, that's what defines you. And yes, Maybe you think your success defines you. I mean, people get caught up in that too. All their knowledge and all their success and all their accomplishments define them. And, and the reality is, all that leaves you feeling empty though. And we can be defined by Christ. He can stop our search because we're constantly searching to find that which will define us. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And so you can understand that 
he has told her a compelling story. It's resonated with her and she's going to have an impact on her entire village. In his book, Sahara Unveiled, William Lang, Langweichel tells the story of an Algerian, Algerian named Laglag and a companion whose truck broke down while crossing the desert. They nearly died of thirst during the three weeks they, they waited before being rescued. As their bodies dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything in hopes of quenching their terrible thirst. The sun forced them into the shade under the truck where they dug a shallow trench. Day after day, they lay there. They had food but did not eat, fearing it would magnify their thirst. Dehydration, not starvation, kills wanderers in the desert, and thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. Psychologists used Greek-based words to describe stages of human thirst. For example, the Sahara is dis is dipsogenic, meaning thirst-provoking. In Lagleg's case, they might say he progressed from eudipsia, ordinary thirst, through bouts of hyperdipsia, meaning temporary intense thirst, to polydipsia, sustained excessive thirst. Polydipsia means the, the kind of thirst that drives one to drink anything. There are specialized terms for such behavior, including uriposia, the drinking of urine, hemoposia, the drinking of blood. For wordy enthusiasts, this is heady stuff. Nevertheless, the lexicon is not kept up with technology. I have tried and cannot coin a suitable word for the drinking of rusty radiator water. Radiator water is what Lag Lag and his assistant starved into when good drinking water was gone. In order to survive, they were willing to drink, in effect, poison. Many people do something similar in the spiritual realm. They depend uh, on things like money, sex, and power to quench spiritual thirst. Unfortunately, such thirst quenchers are in reality spiritual poison, a dangerous substitute for the living water Jesus promised. Wow, what a great illustration. You have, you have friends and neighbors that are drinking radiator water, poison, trying to satisfy their spiritual thirst and only Christ can satisfy that thirst. Again, Jesus not only tells me who he is, he also tells me who I am. Here's our third claim this morning. This time, another conversation. Jesus and the disciples in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, he tells the disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Jesus tells us that he is the way. I am the way. I am. I am the Christ. And I am the way. Now, there's a real issue with this claim, right? You, you get the claim today as a real issue in our society because the problem is Jesus is simply too exclusive in a world that is claiming to be so inclusive. We live in a very inclusive world today, you know? And uh, Jesus is very exclusive. He's like, no, I am the way. In fact, I am the only way. There is no other way besides me there's no other way to the father there's no other way to the truth in fact he doubles down in this whole argument basically says i am the way i am the truth like i am the way and i'm telling you the truth <laughs> that i am the way and i am the way to life it's like boom 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 um so this is a really a narrow thing and a struggle for people it's like aren't there other ways to god 
Like, can't Buddha get me there? Can't Allah get me there? And we know that he can't. We've talked about this already in the series. There's only one that was worthy to come and redeem us from our sin and take us to heaven to the Father, and that is Jesus the Christ. There's only one. There's only one. So, pretty powerful stuff. Now, I thought about the way. What does the way look like a moment? What can be helpful to understand the way? And I think in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount can help us. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, I just, every time I read it, I think it, it just gets so misinterpreted. In fact, a lot of the, go- you know, this is really ironic, a lot of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get misinterpreted, misunderstood, because why? Because we don't look at them through the Gospel. Like, we don't understand the Gospels often because we don't look at them through the Gospel, through the cross. And so I thought about this in Matthew seven thirteen. You enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few when we say that jesus is the way one way to understand that is that jesus is the narrow way jesus not my behavior is the narrow way it's the exclusive way i think so many times we read this like there's this broad way that leads to destruction and it's just the wild and wicked and sinful that are on the broad way leading to destruction and over here is the narrow way and those are the people that are living good moral lives And they got all their act together and that's the narrow way and that's not the truth. Because there are a lot of good moral people that are on the broad way to destruction. Because all their good works are like filthy rags and we cannot save ourselves. We need to know that. The religious establishment in Jesus' day were very holy and very, very good at, at, uh, you know, trying to to live lives that looked really impeccable to the other outside people. And yet they were on the wide road to destruction The narrow way that leads to life is Christ. It's simply that. It is simply Christ. There are a lot of well-intentioned pastors today who are probably on the broad road to destruction because they are simply not, have never put their faith and trust in Christ. By contrast then, look at this. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we could say really here by extension that the, the broad way is our way, right? The broad way is our way. And uh, to, to get on the narrow way is when we exit off our own way and we start going a different, we, we take a U-turn and we go the, the narrow way. We begin to put our faith and trust in Christ. The Broadway is our way, the self-righteousness and unrighteousness. It's the road we have been traveling on all along since birth. We have just been going our own way. We need to exit that and get on the narrow path. Again, Jesus, though, not only tells me who he is, he tells me who I am. Look back at verse 1 a moment back here. We just read this, but look what it says again in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you don't believe in God, and if you don't know the way you're going to be troubled in your soul. He says, I will come again, verse 3, and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. It's a promise to the Jewish people there at the time, but, but the reality is it's also we're promised the same thing, that he's going to come back and he's going to take us home. He's going to take us off of this, off of this sin-infested planet. He's going to, Christ has taken our wrath and he's going to take us to glory before he pours out his wrath on mankind what a a great beautiful reality he tells us to basically encourage each other with those very words 
But here, here's, here's the thing then, just understand this, that without Jesus, a troubled world will lead to a troubled soul. We live in a troubled world today, right? We can all agree with that. And if you don't know the way, if you don't know Jesus, the troubled world will lead to a troubled soul. So we need to keep our eyes on him. See, the problem is the world is so inclusive, like anything goes and everybody's right, that you're, you're just left searching. It's like, okay, you tell me everything's right, but a lot of this doesn't feel right. And they can't answer life's deepest questions and we keep searching and searching and searching. When you come along and say, you know, there's only one way, there's one exclusive way that has the answer to life's deepest questions and you can know for certain what happens when you die. You can know for certain why you're here and you can know for certain why you have value and worth. When you have that exclusivity of the way of Christ, boy, it brings a real peace and security and hope to your soul. Jesus takes the trouble out of our soul. He just does. And we need to know that, that he is the way and that he can take the trouble out of our soul. We see this in the Bible. I was thinking of David, like there's David. And remember David when he stumbled into the dark part of his life, like he got lazy and he stayed home from war because he was too good to go out for war anymore. And then he got tempted and he committed adultery. And we know how that goes, he committed adultery. And then, then he had to cover that up. So he tried really hard to cover up his adultery. And he, he tried so hard to cover up that he actually murdered a guy. And he went through all of that. And, if, and then eventually God comes and confronts him and calls him out on his sin and you would think that if you were like like David you think my life would be over like with that kind of on stuff on my resume and my record like give up man like like I've blown my life and David goes to his deathbed with incredible confidence and faith and trust in God why because Jesus takes the trouble out of our soul even when our life is really messed up and it's our own fault and then there's Joseph, right? Joseph, like he has those great dreams and, his, and then his brothers, they get angry at him and they're jealous of him and so then they sell him into slavery and they lie to his dad and his dad thinks he's dead and Joseph's, you know, he gets his, his character gets impugned, his motiv, motiv, motivations are maligned and all of this stuff he goes through, he goes to jail unjustly and all those dreams are like never gonna happen and the whole time Joseph is a man didn't seem to have any trouble in his soul. He had peace. Why? And that's what Jesus does for us. He takes the trouble out of our soul and he gives us a sense of peace. You see, Jesus is the way and when you know you are on the right path, that gives you security, peace, and hope. And it gives you security, peace, and hope. Tim Keller in his book, A Vision for a Gospel-Centered Life, said he would never forget the story about one of his mentors, a college professor named Dr. Addison Leach. Two young women at the college were both bright and their respective parents wanted them to get master's degrees and go on to careers. But instead, they both became Christians. Both decided they were going to become missionaries. Their parents had a fit. One of the mothers called Dr. Leach, thinking that Dr. Leach was one of the reasons that the girls had become, in the mother's worlds, religious fanatics, rather than pursuing the course they had hoped, getting a career and having security. Instead, they were going to go wildly off into the blue. This mother said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, start a career, and get something in the bank so she could have some security. Dr. Leach responded, please, just 
Let me remind you of something. We're all on a little ball of rock called Earth. And we're spinning uh, along through space at zillions of miles per hour. Even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die. Which means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day. And we're going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. So maybe we can get a master's degree to, to get some security. But the biggest savings account in the world cannot stop cancer. It can't stop traffic accidents. It cannot stop uh, broken hearts. It can't give you anything, any of the things that God can give you. He's the only significance you can have. He's the only love that can get you and can't lose. In other words, you can have all the security in the world, but it's not going to answer life's deepest questions. And you're going to be thirsty, and you're going to be searching, and you're going to be looking for peace and security and hope. Some of the most secure people have most, secu- most, some of the people in the world that have the most security because they got so much money are the most insecure people and are so, so incredibly searching. So what did we see today? What did we learn today about the claims of Jesus? I'm going to skip that if I could. What do we see today? Jesus claimed to be God, the great I am. He is the self-existent God. That's who he claims to be. He claims to be God. He is the great I am. He determines if I am a child of God or if I am a child of Satan. He makes that determination. He tells me who I am. Not only who he is, he tells me who I am. Because what I do with him determines whether I am saved or whether I am not saved. Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the eternal one, the promised one, the anointed one. He promised to, he claimed to be the Christ. He promised to lay down his life for us. He was the rock that was struck that provided the living water that satisfied our thirst and he is the end of our spiritual search. And then he claimed to be the way. He is the narrow and exclusive way. There is no other way but Jesus. There's no other way to peace and security and hope than through Christ. In all the options in the world today, in all the false religions of the world today, amidst the plurality of religion and the self-help options and the self-centered living, amidst the attempts to self-medicate with all the destructive choices in the world, there is a very exclusive and narrow way. His name is Jesus and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only salvation in Jesus, and we find in Jesus an answer to the trouble that riddles our soul. Of all the I am statements, I'm just going to give you one last one here briefly in closing, just going to throw this out here. Um, Jesus says, I am the life. He does say, I am the life. And I was thinking about Jesus' most profound statement for himself is when he says, I am. His most significant statement to us might be when he says, I am the life. Because understand that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, his life becomes your life, right? That's the truth bomb, and we all know this. We've heard it a million times, but just let it sink in again. Upon salvation, Jesus' life becomes my life. Like I become a new creation in my messed up life with, with, all, with all of my issues, he gives me his life. And I become a new creation in Christ, and I simply need to be aware of that. I need to be, be, need to be reminded of that every single day. The one who tells us who he is also then tells us now who we are. He tells us who we are and all that we can be in Christ as he answers life's deepest questions. This week, 
Build your faith and defend your hope by choosing one of these titles or these defining qualities each day to focus on. And so in your notes, and if you didn't pick any notes up, you can grab one. There's more on the way home. There's a table on the back there that gives you a, a bunch of I am statements of who I am in Christ. And uh, just every day, choose one of those I am statements and focus on it. And just dwell on it for that day. I am worthy, I am holy, I am free, I am alive. And it goes on and on. And there's just so many of them to, to just be reminded of who I am. And why is this important? Because when it comes to defending the faith and sharing your faith, here's the thing to, to remember. That a, a very powerful part of this is going to be your compelling story. This isn't true for everybody, but for a lot of people, they're going to come to faith I mean, not just because you give them all the arguments and all the theology, and, but because, you, because your life is such an incredibly compelling story. And so focus on who you are, what Christ has done in your life, and share that with others. Let's, let's stand together, and we're going to sing this song as we close today. And uh, what a great song to end on this morning, just to encourage us as we walk out the door.